0: Hey everyone, it's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription.
1: Now on with the show.
2: Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break!
0: But well, sometimes that is better.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today the topic at hand is Stephen King's Silver Bullet and the oddity that inspired it, the calendar-based novella cycle of the werewolf. And our guest today can add some insight into this particular adaptation. In 1979, he unleashed Phantasm onto the world and created a new horror icon in The Tall Man. It should be noted that Phantasm's influence has made its way into Star Wars. Captain Phasma was designed and named after the film. And even in The King's own writing, the killer spheres were notably name-checked in Wolves of the Kala. So shout out to all those uh, Dark Tower fans out there. Uh, He has since given us gems like Bubba Hotep, John Dies at the End, and of course, The Beastmaster, which uh, still uh, affects me to this day, Don. I still have nightmares about those fucking bat things that that crap out skeletons. And while we're on the subject, I'm going to plug a couple more of uh, Don's more obscure titles. Kenny and Company is a great coming-of-age movie. You should seek it out if you can. I think it's out of print, but if you can find it, watch it. It's awesome. And he also made a movie uh, that starred Lance Henriksen. Called Survival Quest, great eighties thriller, very unsung. Seek it out, find it. Uh, so, if you haven't figured it out yet, ladies and gentlemen,
0: please welcome Don Coscarelli to the KingCast stage.
2: Eric Scott, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I'm we're really delighted happy to, to here. be here. I just rewatched John Dies at the End the other day, and it really holds up. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, you know it's available on
2: uh, Amazon, and yeah, uh, you know, thanks for plugging that because the the other night I was looking for. Uh, something to watch on prime and uh it was in the popular movies category so it's <laughs> it's weird the kind of things that uh excite me these days you know the different kinds of, it's not we're not movie box office. It's we can get on a popular list so that was cool yep. but yeah uh, john dies at the end based on this uh, amazing uh novel by uh David Wong—that's his pen name. His real name's Jason Pargen, who's gone on to do two more books, which were terrific, and uh, he's got a fourth and a fifth coming out uh, in the near future. So he's a very prolific and talented writer, and it was really exciting to work with him on that project for sure.
0: You know what really came through to me on this viewing was that the mythology of that movie, the 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 tone of it, and the. The voice of the characters, all the all the dialogue is clearly coming through the prism of someone who is steeped in Internet culture and a a certain kind of attitude and quick wittedness and sort of snarkiness. David, I I know that's not his real name, but we'll we'll use that for these purposes, I guess. (laughs) Um, He was definitely that guy, you know, like he 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 came up on the Internet and you can you can feel that sort of. I don't know how else to describe it except the voice of the internet. It's like what I hear when I think of like, say the internet talking or Twitter talking or something like that. Maybe not Twitter because well, that's a little more you know, you're, you're uh, right toxic on. and horrible, but you know, it yeah, it really Scott, comes I, through in the
2: movie. Yeah. And, and you're you're so right on because the, the, the work itself w- was a creature of the internet. Um, the book, because, uh, right. he was, He had this uh, website called Pointless Waste of Time, and he would, uh, you know, way before the creepypastas or any of that stuff, he was releasing chapters uh, of this book that then became John Dies at the End. And my understanding was, is that before it ever made it to print, it had something like 50,000 views where people had read the whole book online
1: which mm-hmm. was pretty
2: darn high. And then the cool part about it was the web completely made the movie because I've told the story and it's a hundred percent true. I got a, I got a, uh, email from an, a robot at <laughs> Amazon. I got a, I got a, uh, an email from one of the bots at Amazon and it said, if you like that zombie Uh, book you just read you're gonna love john dies at the end (laughs) uh, the the bot was right you know because i read this little tagline went oh man this would make a cool movie so uh the whole thing and then don't forget that uh jason pargin david wong he was uh the managing editor of crack.com and if if you can go back and read some of his essays are just phenomenal so very uh, very funny writer yeah, but yes. good, good, good catch on the connection there. Yeah, it is, it is, it is so web centric, no question.
0: I'm glad to see that it's. Uh, I, I think that's how I found it. Now was I like I had already seen it. I saw it at South sure, yeah. by when it premiered, and a couple times in the year since, but. Yeah, it just like popped up, I think, on my Amazon menu. I was like, oh yeah, I haven't seen that. Why don't we got Don coming on the show? Let's, let's check, that <laughs> out. check that out, out again. And well, also, yeah. I'm a big fan of Bubba Hotep. Gonna, oh, thank you. And Phantasm. Uh huh. I don't know which one I w- want to bother you with questions about. I'm going to go fanta- Phantasm here. I'm going to ask you a question. you sure. probably heard a, a b- bazillion times at this point, but yes. um, Angus Scrim. what's this guy like in real life?
2: Oh, well, uh, Eric can also attest to it because he spent many a afternoon at lunch with Angus. Angus was my <laughs> good friend, you know, and it's so sad that he's gone. Yeah. I, 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 I cast him in my very first movie. He was the first adult actor I ever worked with. He was an imposing presence in person. He was a real sweetheart and pussycat when you knew him, but boy, if he wasn't happy, I mean, we, in the first film I, um, Almaquazie student film that I made, we cast him as this alcoholic father. And we were so messed up logistically that, you know, we would have him drive down to the shooting location in Long Beach and Stick him in the back room in this uh, this tenement apartment building, and he'd sit there for like eight or nine hours, and it would be my job to go back and tell him that we weren't going to get to him that day. And he would turn and look at me, just like the tall man, like the eye <laughs> the eyebrow would come up, and he'd go, "What?" in that deep voice. And I was very intimidated uh, by him, and that I think had a lot to do with me casting him in a in a horror.
0: Hell yeah, um, it would. If I, if Angus Scrim were mad, had been ever been mad at me in real life and he's in the room with me, I would have wet my pants and run out of the room. Like, no question. How tall was that dude?
2: Uh, He was six foot four um as he liked Egg. to say though he was constantly shrinking as he got older yeah. uh, but you know we did it the That's old true. way we put him in those uh, you know like Boris Karloff wasn't a very tall guy and he mm-hmm. had those elevator shoes that uh, <laughs> raised him up and a lot of it was camera angles but but most of it was you know Angus was able to conjure something in him you know that oh was for sure real and frightening and uh you know you just couldn't i'd love to take credit for it but i can't i just put the camera on and let it roll
1: i never got to meet vincent price for instance but i imagine that vincent price in person would have been a whole lot like angus where yeah. where uh you know you know rory is was, was his uh his non-stage name and he uh yeah. uh he, he would uh like just be the most soft-spoken quiet kind of delicate guy every time we talk and just so appreciative of of all the fans of like if somebody came up to him during a, a meal or something and recognized him he would like he would love it you know it, it wasn't like he was angry about it or you know like leave me alone or whatever he really embraced the horror community and his horror icon status at least it seemed to be from my pr- perspective the few times i ran into him and got to spend well, you time you know with
2: him. he enjoyed meeting the fans and he had this phenomenal memory where he he might get a, a fan letter from somebody in the 80s, and 25 years later, he'd meet him at a convention and be able to quote from the letter that the person Jesus, had sent to him. Good Lord. And uh, it was is a, a very strange thing, because I would go to these conventions with them, and I'd listen to people telling me about how the tall man terrified me. It was the scariest thing that I ever saw. And then I would just see them falling all over themselves to... Hug Angus and pinch him <laughs> and kiss him like I, I. Maybe it was a way of you know
0: making it less scary.
2: Yeah, I don't know, but they love meeting them. And and Scott, you're leading me into a perfect setup moment for me to announce that uh, one of the good news in Phantasm Land is the right. Phantasm uh, collection sphere collection set is going to be back. Uh, Our distributor put out all five movies with a model replica sphere on Blu-ray and they put it out and they had about, I don't know, they got about 500 copies out and then COVID struck and their supply chain went to heck. And uh, so anyway, they're relaunching it onto uh, Amazon and eventually Best Buy in the next few weeks. So everybody who missed out, and there's so many people who were mad at me, you know, that didn't get the thing. And then it it skyrocketed (laughs) in price on eBay that now the uh, Sphere set is back. It's coming out. So if you didn't get one... Uh, be sure to check it
0: out on Amazon. Ain't, ain't that the internet though? Like as the, though as though you're hoarding them in your house right, and just deciding not to mail them <laughs> out. <laughs>
2: but the cool thing, I'm going to continue to to uh, uh, promote this thing. It's got what? the unrated version of Phantasm too. We were so hammered by the ratings board during uh, the editing of Phantasm two at Universal. I mean, we had an upcoming release date, so there was no way to do really do any editing or to you know, even work or appeal it. The ratings board forced us to pretty much take out all the bloodletting in the sphere sequence when the sphere hit the unfortunate priest. I managed to hang on to all that original negative, and our distributor, Welgo USA reconstituted it into a beautifully restored version and it's wow. uh, for the first time that's available in the collection
1: so oh, that's great nice. yeah you're getting lots of phantasm love as of like the last few years right because then you you got to do the remaster because JJ abrams like kind of stepped forward and, and helped you get that done right on the first one
2: yeah it's a it's the weird thing about getting older is you uh start to meet these very successful younger filmmakers who saw the movie when they're 14 or 15 years old and uh the one thing about phantasm is it had an impact on uh, young people i think from the scares and also there was a you know the i meet a lot of younger guys who really relate to the having a young male protagonist uh right. like mike in that and uh it sticks with them for a long time so uh yeah we've got a lot of uh and 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 thank God to JJ for uh, allowing me. I mean that was really a, a, an incredible blessing, because he had wanted to screen the movie over at Bad Robot for some of his uh, employees and team members who had not seen the film, and uh, we didn't have a high def version. We just had the old standard def DVD. And he said, oh, that can't work, and uh, basically <laughs> offered me the use of his systems. They had bought a new uh, restoration system called Mystica, and uh, so over the course of about two years, I'd get a call from his uh, really great post-production guy, Ben Rosenberg, and said, oh, Don, you got some time this evening come over. We're available, and I could go over, and they'd uh, color correct the negative for me. which was fantastic.
0: Wow. What an awesome thing.
2: Yeah, I (laughs) I
1: remember watching Phantasm at uh, the old draft house and we would be one, you're lucky if you can, you could get a print that wasn't faded. Yeah. And, uh, and then two, if you were lucky to not get a pink print, almost certainly it would be beat up because the movie was such a hit on the drive-in circuit, right? So those prints were shipped everywhere and just, you run through the fucking parking lot. It looked like, and then you have these whole sections in that stark white room. (laughs) you know and you know whenever you're getting close to a real change i'll always remember like reggie in the in the the white room and wearing his you know ice cream man white and black outfit and just like it looked like a a a black snowstorm was happening on screen just because with all the scratches grit and dirt and all that stuff
2: i mean uh, the only thing you can do is throw your hands up and say well uh um We'll pretend we're in a grindhouse,
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I do have a lot of nostalgia for those, those old kind of poppy beat up prints. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go as far as like the, cause there's a whole VHS nostalgia thing. And I'm just, I'm happy to leave that technology dead, <laughs> dead in the past. So uh, yeah. I'll uh, I'll acknowledge it without, with although saying also saying I love these 4K remasters and and the the perfect versions of these and the ability to watch them anytime I want in my house. So. Yeah,
2: no, no, VHS was just a terrible. I mean, it, it provided <laughs> access to everyone, and it was a really fun social environment to go out to the uh, blockbuster on Saturday right. night and pick out your tapes that you're going to rent. But as a you know, as a system of delivering quality video, it just had so <laughs> many flaws. Oh my oh, god! Yeah. In fact, just a side note: I want to don't want to make this too much on Phantasm, but uh, you know, when they first transferred Phantasm to VHS, there was a little blackout scene. I think in like Real eight in that white room it goes black and you hear mike mm-hmm. and reggie talking in the darkness it was excised because the tape operator thought the reel was over and for about <laughs> for about eight years that vhs was missing like a full minute of the movie and it would <laughs> oh you know just so frustrating
0: that format sucked yeah it really i was did. i was at um this is like going back like four years or something but uh I was bartending at the Alamo draft house. Actually, there was a lady who worked there and a much younger lady. I should point out that'll become relevant to the story. Uh, (laughs) And she threw a party at her place one night, invited everyone out. So we go out to her place and um, she had Mondo posters all over the wall and really cool framed movie shit, you know, as as is typically found in the, the home of anyone who was working at the Alamo Giraffe, of house. course. And, uh, you know, I'm just sort of like walking around the party, like checking everything out. And um, she was like, well, let me sh- let me show you this. And uh, took me into her bedroom, which was very crowded. You know, it had a desk in there and a lot of like elaborate stuff set up, up on, on desks, you know, like little statues or, or toys or whatever. And as I'm standing there talking to her, I like kind of bumped into the desk behind me where a row of the Star Wars special edition VHS tapes were set up like dominoes. Oh, wow. And they all knocked over and one of them fell on the ground and she started like screaming. you know, and was so mad at me about like knocking a VHS tape off onto a carpeted floor. And I'm And and I was just like, I didn't know how to react to this. Cause I'm like, do you have any, like the abuse that I put VHS tapes through? Like it's, it's not going to matter. And also it's a fucking VHS. Like these things, these things are a, a dime a dozen. And also it's the special editions. Like I could not wrap my head around it, but she was clearly like so upset. I couldn't, I couldn't say any of that. So I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. And you know, it's my big fat ass knocked a, a, against your desk and, Um, Well,
2: we're we're laughing at that, Scott, because we can all identify with it a little bit. Um, Oh, for sure. You know, because the thing is, is, you know, uh, you you hang out with anybody in the genre and, uh, you know, you always get these questions like, you know, oh, you make cult movies. What's this cult all about? And, you know, the thing is, is cult, I think, just equates with passion. (laughs) And obviously, she's got a passion for those VHS tapes (laughs) and they need to be preserved. For sure. But I, by the way, I can, in terms of bumping into stuff, I can beat that one. I got invited. This was, (laughs) I once went there with Eric and Aaron Morgan to uh, Bob Burns' great Mm -hmm. uh, collection in Burbank of, of, uh, which we'll have to explain for the listeners, which is Bob in the 50s accumulated all of this really great props and costumes from, exploitative and sci-fi movies and it's like a temple if you're if you do that and visit and i before i went spent a a great evening with eric there but then one time i went the first time i went ostensibly because i was going to get the opportunity to sit in the actual time machine prop that rod taylor sat in which Mm -hmm. i did and that was a highlight of my life honestly (laughs) you know, Bob was very generous. He said, oh, go look around, wander. There's all kinds of things. I don't have it organized. And I'm like walking around and I got kind of big feet and I clunked into something and I see it roll out into the aisle. It's all these collectibles are jammed into this space and I look down. And it was the Mankind prop from Invaders of Mars, from Mars, 1954. That little thing <laughs> in the in the, 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 the crystal ball, there's that little uh-huh, monster. Right. I yeah. kicked it with my shoe. And I it was like, no one saw. But I was mortified because this was a movie that meant so much to me as a kid. And I, like, dropped out of my knee and I just reverently set
0: it back on its pedestal. So, uh, anyhow, I feel her pain. Yes. Uh, A question we typically ask our guests, what's your Stephen King origin story? Like, when did he first come onto your radar? That's an interesting
2: question. I would say pretty early. It was in the 70s. My mother, she's no longer with us, Kate Coscarelli, was an avid reader. And back in those days, I don't know if they still have them, probably not. They had these things called book clubs. And you mm-hmm. would sign up and uh, you would get a, I think it was the book of the month club. Yeah, and yeah. She, yeah, she would get a book every month through this club. And then she'd also be able to get a bonus book or a, and then they'd send you a free book. It was a, I think it was an inexpensive way to tap into what was current in publishing. And they would send out these beautiful catalogs. And I remember sitting there looking at this two-page spread in the book of the month club on Salem's lot. And I'm thinking, this looks like my kind of book, you know. And I, <laughs> the, the imagery was quite garish for, for you know, it's mostly a lot of romance fiction in this these, these book of right. catalogs. Right. Anyway, so I said, um, hey, mom, g- get me this book, you know. And uh, she looked at it and she goes, oh, that's not really my type. And so she never did get it. But that was the very first time he came on my radar. So that then I was prepped for uh, – the night that I went and saw the uh, wonderful Brian De Palma movie of Carrie, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, then I realized that he was uh, really something gifted, Stephen King. And then, of course, I started buying his books and reading them. I, I couldn't tell you which one was first, but definitely in that eighties phase, I was, you know, reading Dead Zone and Firestarter and just Shining. Um, Do you have a and, favorite of those? In turn, you're talking about literary and book form, you're right? Yeah, sure. Or a movie, it doesn't matter. Oh well, uh, of course I left The Shining. I mean that goes without saying. Uh, but uh,
0: fair answer, fair answer. You know,
2: you know, uh, you know book wise, you know, I I like The Dead Zone a lot. I like Firestarter a lot. In fact, my first brush with Stephen King was Firestarter. Because by the way, we're going to talk for an hour and a half about. My thirty minutes with Stephen King in nineteen eighty four.
1: Yes, which is
2: do. you know, which is a very memorable experience for me. But uh, just as exciting was my good friend Paul Pepperman, who co-produced, who produced Phantasm and the Beastmaster, and was my college roommate and, and a collaborator on a lot of my early films. Uh, he went to see Stephen King in person, and he bought me uh, Firestarter autographed. This was back when King was going to the bookstores and promoting his work. And so I think for my birthday, Paul gave me this Firestarter book and it actually said, um, to Don, uh i really like phantasm what's next stephen king which i used to have treasured and i have like the like oh, your girlfriend with her her uh star wars things i anybody mm-hmm. knocked that off the shelf i'd be oh not a girlfriend just want to be
0: real clear on that oh. in case my wife listens to this episode this is just a coworker,
2: girl space friend
0: a lady now. friend yes yeah.
2: okay but yeah so that that was uh, those were the, i i really got into them then and then look um You still have that
0: copy of the book though? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, I wouldn't uh, ever part with that. It's great. (laughs) Good Lord. What a thing to have, though.
2: Yeah. But I mean, uh, you know, back in, you know, if you were active in the, I think it was in 1980, you could, you know, just stand in a line and get something signed uh, from
1: you. Yeah, if you're in the right right spot, he doesn't do that very often anymore. But he does do it from time to time. He'll do, I'm sure he will do a, a like a, a limited book tour. But it used to be where he that's where he would like uh, be the motorcycle guy, right? Didn't because he hates flying, so he would hop on a motorcycle and just like drive from town to town to do his signings and wow. stuff. Wow, that's like the the renegade like uh, midlife crisis dad version of Stephen King. <laughs> Well, you It's know, a very I've,
0: I've, r- Richard Bachman thing to do. You know? Heard,
2: heard, yes, of course. And uh, I was just going to say that uh, I've heard some sto- stories. Of he, he keeps his counsel, I have to admit. But Mick Garris has been friends with Stephen for many years. And uh, right. I probably heard more from Mick's wife, Cynthia, who's uh, <laughs> right. always uh, – been a good close friend i understand of stevens and everything that i hear from them mirrors what happened in my experience which was tim to be just a very warm approachable good guy but beyond that we should you know take a moment to talk about and obviously the reason for this podcast is you know the guy is a national treasure let's just get it out there Mm -hmm. and uh yes he doesn't need me to comment about his career, but if I would just talk among friends like yourselves from the sidelines, I would just say, you know, maybe the challenge has always been is that he wrote these incredibly great books, which were categorized as horror. And Mm -hmm. any of us who have worked in the horror field know that horror is equated as one cut above pornography, you know? And so, uh, Mm Not to equate King with the greatest authors in, uh, and I don't want to get too carried away, but I love his work. And uh, the the impact that he's had on movies is just astounding. But, uh, right. I mean, I, God damn, he's got to be, I think he's exceeded Mark Twain. I mean, I, you know, I, he's, he's had an impact that's uh, really profound. And I, I hope that the East Coast literary scene will
0: you know i don't know it, it, it seems to that, be a, i sure. think what you're talking about has kind of died out though you know he is he has moved into an elder statesman role and i think that what you're now seeing is a whole a couple generations beyond the first generation that was sort of reviewing his books as they came out and sort of sniffing at them now hold him in the same regard as 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 a great american author like like mark twain yeah it's, you know deserved. when There's no when gosh. Eventually, there will come a day where there is no mo- more Stephen King, and he will leave a hole in American literature that I'm not sure – I can't point a finger right now and say, like, who's going to fill that? You know, I mm-hmm. I really am not sure. He's monumental, you know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on the on – I like in, that one. Monumental. It, That's it. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, literally, like, it, imagine, like, uh, what's that thing called with all the president's faces on it? Uh, Mount Rushmore money. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good one. If there's a Mount Rushmore of American literature, like King is absolutely one of those heads on the wall. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's earned it. And I think that over time, like growing up, you know, Eric and I are both children of the eighties. So we've seen the progression from him being sort of like, Oh, that's, he's just a pulpy horror writer to this guy is like, an all-time great it's super rewarding to see that you know as a fan you know that's it's an awesome thing to witness
1: you have to keep in mind also that not only are all the people that are writing those sniffy uptight you know reviews now they're they've grown up with king right and so there's one that's one check in his box so they're like you know they're, they're gonna be more open to his stuff. Period. And they also have the benefit of hindsight and looking at his entire career, whereas all the people that were like, nah, Salem's Lot, vampires or whatever, you know, it's like whatever they wanted to, to be, uh, uh, you know, snooty about, you know, they didn't have the benefit of going, oh, this guy also wrote The Body and wrote Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and wrote, you know, all these other non-horror things that proved his versatility versus just being that horror guy. Not saying that they were any more or any less wrong in their uh, dismissal of King at the time, but that's why you see, you don't see a lot of critical hate towards him now is that people can, can look at his whole body of work and use that to explain away any of their, their love for the the supernatural or, or whatever, you know, that they might (laughs) typically disdain.
2: Absolutely. Well, we're, we're so lucky that he was so prolific too. That's another component of his greatness. Oh, for real, dude. For real. Yeah. I mean, what if he only wrote a book every three years?
0: <laughs> We'd, yeah. Well, that's how we did the Dark Tower. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. enough about that. So I guess let's talk about the, uh, the choice you made for today's show. You brought a silver bullet. Obviously, you have your own personal connection to, to Silver Bullet in a way. So maybe we start there and then we get into uh, the book and the movie.
1: Mm, yeah, Because sure. I think that uh we might need to set the stage a little bit for, for some listeners who might not know that you were actually involved in the movie for, for a while. Uh, yeah. oh, and so so well, maybe we, we just on
0: up to say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I think that we're you know, yeah, that's absolutely where we, we need to start because there's so many stories out there actually that are like vague or contradictory mm-hmm. about your involvement in the in the movie. So I would love to get your whole I, whole I, angle I would, on where it began and you know and what all happened there. Clearing and, and the it, record, Don.
2: And thank you, uh, Eric, for teeing me up for another self promotion, which is <laughs> it's all in my my uh, my book, True Indie, which you can yeah. buy uh at Amazon or on Phantasm.com. You can get an autograph version and I tell the whole story. But for you guys, I will tell it again live. Um, yeah, I was involved in uh what became Silver Bullet. Actually, it started when I was making a film called The Beastmaster. I had just finished making this movie. i I know uh I don't know about you, Scott, but I know Eric. I bored him to tears over the years about what a terrible experience it was for me, you know, with creative interference and all kinds of problems with this producer from the middle east who drove me crazy uh during the making so i finished the movie it it came out it didn't get the greatest distribution and it didn't do the you know it didn't light the world on fire in the theatrical box office and just a click a couple weeks later i get a phone call from another uh international foreign uh producer by the name of dino de Laurentiis uh
0: oh here we go dino
2: Dino um, loved the Beastmaster, and uh, which I'm laughing at now that I think back on it. And he uh, decided that I would be the perfect one to direct Conan the destroyer the sequel to conan yeah. to me it was it was what a letdown because here's one of the biggest movie producers of the time <laughs> you know he he worked with fellini you know he he did all <laughs> these things he was he was actually at the time producing uh dune with david lynch directing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and i'm thinking this could be something exciting and, and instead it's conan the destroyer and um uh, you know, I just made a, you know, sword and sorcery movie. I was fed up to hear with that arch dialogue that sort of goes with those types mm-hmm. of movies, which Beastmaster succumbed to, which Conan succumbed to, which Game of Thrones even succumbs to, where it's like all the characters have to be some from some kind of British accent thing. And I just <laughs> couldn't imagine myself doing that. And so I had this agonizing weekend trying to decide, you know, I had no prospects for another picture, you know, uh, to direct. I had a 10 month old son and I had, you know, how could I turn down a chance to make a good payday with a, although I I need to give myself some credit the Terminator had not come out yet. So Arnold wasn't who he became. I I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, working with a, you know, English English as a second language producer from another country and I think they were shooting in Mexico and I actually turned them down. I would be dishonest if I said that for weeks and months afterwards I didn't continue to regret that decision, but the screenplay was was not much. I didn't like it much. And it was pretty much the screenplay, that the movie that came out. So you can go watch that sequel <laughs> and decide if there was anything of value there yourself. Um, but I didn't do it. In any case, uh, learned an interesting lesson there, which is that sometime when you turn people down, they want you more. And so about, I don't know, a few months later, I get another phone call from Dino. And He goes, I think I have a project for you. I said, oh, great, you know, because I've been regretting it all this time. What is it? And he he says, it's based on a work by Stephen King. My blood pressure shot through the roof. And I just thought, (laughs) oh, my God, this is it. I've got it, you know. Great. And he says, I'll send it over to you. And I'm telling you, I literally sat by the front door. Waiting for his messenger <laughs> service to arrive, and I'm like thinking, "Well, what is it? Is it a book? You know, is it a uh, is it a short story? Uh, is there a finished? Sc- Did Stephen King write the screenplay? You know, like uh, my mm-hmm. mind is just racing. And then the door uh, opens, and the messenger hands me this this pat- satchel, and I pick it, open it up. And it's basically I've been offered a calendar to direct as a movie, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh come on! And I'm looking, and then there's the book that was based on the calendars included with it, and I'm and I'm looking, and it's really thin. And there's and it mm-hmm. also had a screenplay that some other people had written. So I was to, but I had been told by Dino he didn't like the screenplay, so mm. he needed a new screenplay. And so I'm thinking this thing is awful thin but i'm telling you i read it and i saw you know there's a there's a, a movie there immediately because number right. 1 it had an incredible protagonist in this character of Marty on the surface you look at him you know he's a he's a kid in a wheelchair i guess he's a paraplegic where is his life going how is he existing at school i don't know but he's in this small town, and there's this werewolf that strikes on holidays. So that, you, which is where they got the idea of, of King and Bernie Wrightson creating the calendar, where Bernie Wrightson would do the wonderful art, and then uh, King had written a few paragraphs, which he with each month explaining how the yeah. werewolf would strike. But anyway, the heart, the core <laughs> of it was this kid protagonist, who, much like Phantasm, he was smarter than. Everybody else in the story, <laughs> he was more aware, uh, more courageous, and nobody believed him. And so I called Dino and I just said, I'm in. I'd love to. I would love to do this. This could make a great movie. That's how it started. I guess to say it all went downhill from yeah, there. Yeah, and then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, won't, yeah. I won't say that because I've got to get
0: to my uh, my meeting with Steven. Um, yes, so I, I would just really quickly, I, I do love the concept of them sending you the calendar version on top of everything else. And you like seeing this and being like, imagining yourself on set, like, what are we shooting today? And someone's like, September. Yeah, (laughs) Well, you know, the thing was, is
2: that I always, from the outset, I wanted to keep the calendar format because I thought it was brilliant. And I thought if it works in a book, why can't it work in a movie? You know, and so I was in my mind from the get go before I started doing my take on a screenplay, I was thinking. You know about the great, you know the great montages and transitional uh, interstitial scenes they would have in movies from the '30s and '40s with the calendar mm-hmm. pages blowing by, and right. I thought, oh, we could do a modern sure. version of that. You know, where you'd 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 show the seasons change a little bit, and then the calendar page would blow back, and it would be July, yeah, and, yeah. and then yeah, the werewolf cool. would strike on the fourth of July. Um, so I, I was ready to embrace that. So I was invited to come back to New York city to, uh, meet with Dino and figure out how to proceed. So, um, I went back and for a while I brought my wife, Shelly along and she was six weeks pregnant with our first son, Andy. You know, it was a, it was a great time. We got a, a, a little hotel up the street from the Gulf and Western building. It was called the Mayflower. And I guess I was there for about a month. Um, and so I went in and met with Dino and, uh, but I was first introduced to Dino's translator. He was a gentleman named Sergio Altieri. Sergio was this big bear of a guy, you know, Italian guy who obviously spoke both languages fluently. And then I learned that, uh, according to Sergio, that Dino needed everything that he read translated into Italian. So, uh, Sergio was crazy, uh, Although I suspect Dino read English just fine, because I saw him read some things I handed to him before, and he seemed to be able to read them in English. But in any case, uh, so Sergio was crazy busy, because every script that was submitted, he had to translate into Italian. And he became my uh, conduit, guiding me through the De Laurentiis operation over there. And I really liked liked Sergio a lot. And by the way, later in, because Sergio's passed away, unfortunately, I found out recently, I think a few years back, but he actually became a science fiction novelist on, in his own right and, and, mm. and, did some, uh, some nice books. But in any case, so I went and met with, um, Dino and I don't remember getting much, you know, I gave him my pitch on, you know, I'd like to keep the calendar format and, uh, cause the previous screenplay that was written didn't had, had abandoned that. And so, uh, then I, uh, was going to get ready to get to work and, um, uh, then i was told that sergio would be co-writing with me you know uh which was okay because i liked the guy a lot and i thought well what the hell we'll bounce off ideas he can put them into italian dino will be able to read them and we can Mm -hmm. uh write the uh screenplay together uh but you know it's it's hard to work in a vacuum is well you guys work in a vacuum in your writing pursuits and you you know what it's like and it's it can, it can be a lot of fun to work with a writing partner. So I, oh, I for did, sure. did embrace that at the beginning. So we went to work and basically talked it all through and then sort of divided up the months and we'd each take months and, and try to flesh it out. So we basically worked for a couple of weeks we were pretty quick because you know we weren't changing much because it's so much great material we were just you know putting in some dialogue or what have you and uh we finished a draft we submitted it to dino and then i got a call from sergio to get over to the office that dino didn't like the draft and so (laughs) i raced over there classic dino uh, you know i'm i'm sitting there uh in, a way in Dino's big office, which was really something. And uh, he started to be really critical of the work. He's going through, you know, I don't, first off, he didn't think that the monthly format was going to work in Silver Bullet. And he, he wanted that abandoned, I believe. The other thing, I had a big bone of contention with, uh, well, okay, I forgot one major component of this. In the mm. first meeting with Dino, he's saying, and Carlo Rambaldi will build this werewolf. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> at the time, Carlo Rombaldi was like the number one effects guy yep. in the world. I don't know if revisionist history treats him as well nowadays because I've read different things, but I'll leave that to others to, to say that. I will tell you that I was not particularly wowed by Carlo Rombaldi. I never did meet the man, ultimately. But I had witnessed the hype of De Laurentiis' King Kong. He, he made so much about the fact that uh, Carlo Rimbaldi was building a 35-foot animatronic Kong that would you know, wow audiences and will be the greatest thing there ever was. And then I went and saw the movie, and I guess it was Rick Baker played 99% <laughs> of the ape. And that, there's only like one 20-second bit that the Carlo Rimbaldi thing comes online, and it really looks silly if you've ever looked <laughs> yeah. at it. Um, so I wasn't quite sold with that. But Dino and I got into this ongoing row about the werewolf because I'd been thinking about it a lot. And we really need to go back to the nature of werewolf movies because mm. while, sure, the howling Joe did great stuff, werewolves by their nature, I fully don't think you'll be able to make a good werewolf movie Maybe for another 10 or 20 years and the digital art digital artists are able to pull it off. It's the hardest of any, you know, yeah, vampires, easy to do. Frankenstein, easy to do. But to make a believable werewolf that looks like a wolf, good luck. It's just not going to be possible. So I'm thinking about this all the time. I'm going back to New York. I'm thinking, okay, we have to follow Spielberg. This is going to be Jaws, okay? You've got a hint, hint, hint. And when the... Shark shows up and kills somebody. It sure doesn't happen in the first scene unless you artistically create a way to do it, like he did in, you know, with just showing the woman being yanked around. Uh, right. So, this is what I'm thinking about with the werewolf throughout. And uh, then I'd have these meetings with Dino Dinoitis, and he's going, the werewolf needs to be in the opening scene. You know, you have to show him in all his glory (laughs) because Carlo Rombaldi is building the werewolf, you know? And I'm like, it's not going to work. It just can't work. There's this uh, character of Arnie in the opening scene, and uh, it's all done with Stephen King's prose, you know, about how he's working on this railroad and cleaning the snow. The werewolf sneaks up behind him. You got to figure a way to not show the werewolf. Which I did, and I presented it to De Laurentiis and he rejected it. It was a really, uh, I thought, a great way of misdirect because I was going to have the guy Arnie in the snow trying to fix the railroad car, whatever he's working on, and a shadow's moving in and we're seeing a really creepy POV, and maybe we show some red eyes. And then we show a massive gray wolf coming up on him. And just as it's about to strike, the gray wolf looks over his shoulder and then wham the giant werewolf picks the wolf up and rips him in half but you know we do it all in quick cuts like and we could misdirect so you'd fake it out like that there you know there's a right. bigger thing than the wolf but he thought that was silly and that was thrown <laughs> Matt, away that's cool as hell <laughs> i thought so thank you so anyway we're sitting there and dina's ripping apart this draft and i had kind of a weird I hate to even say this, but since Sergio's not around anymore, I realized that De Laurentiis is criticizing all of Sergio's months and he's not really mm. ripping on mine. And I'm like thinking, oh God, should I raise my hand and go, well, I didn't write those. But I thought, <laughs> well, Sergio's a good guy. And I don't, I just kept my mouth shut. So we were sent off to go fix this thing. And then on the way out the door, De Laurentiis said, well, look, uh, Stephen King will be here tomorrow. You'll have to be here to talk to him. You know, and I'm thinking, great, we'll get him to, (laughs) you know, fix the problems. So, uh, you know, I went home that (laughs) night and like listed out all the problems we were having. And, okay, so I went over to the Gulf and Western building and uh, I'm sitting there in Dino's office waiting for King to arrive. And the door opens and there he is. And he was, I think, with his agent at the time, just this very tall you know i'm a pretty tall guy as you know uh taller than me i think very tall and just a big smile and just he's wearing jeans and he's very casual and he comes in and he just the nicest guy like a guy you go out and have a beer with you know just a down to earth self-effacing i immediately you know started telling him about you know how much i loved his other books and he didn't even want to talk about that he's like going well tell me how you did the sphere and the ball and that thing you know Mm -hmm. you you know so he's you know just just really cool and anyway so de Laurentiis calls the meeting to order and uh turns it over to me and 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 first first I go without asking I go um Uh, Stephen, do you think that you could step in and write the screenplay? (laughs) And uh, he says, no, I'm pretty busy. I I, I just don't, I'm not going to have time to do that. And the thing that was kind of bizarre, by the way, at that time was that, uh, you know, the one thing you got to give De Laurentiis credit is that he realized the viability of of, uh, King's work in movies and had locked up a bunch of his current books and was making movies of all of them. Uh, for better or for worse, I never knew exactly. I never did find out. I, you know, maybe he was just the one who was, you know, ready to uh, put money up to buy his stuff at the time. But I, I don't know. At any rate, so there was. They were making a number of films, so he didn't have time to do that. So he said, "Well, you know, he just so what are the problems you having?'" And, and, and we t- talked about the structure, and the Dino you know, didn't really like the the twelve month thing, and. Uh, some of other concerns that he didn't like and how do we fix that. And, uh, and Stephen was, he said, look, that's uh, okay. I get that. That's yeah. Okay. right, right." mean, it's just taking mental notes as we were talking. And then at the end of the meeting, he said, um, well, look, I'm, I'll, I'm going to give it a, some thought and, you know, maybe if I have time, I'll, 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 I'll send you a few notes. And so uh, we left it at that. And then, you know, a couple of days went by and I got, uh, a uh, phone call from Sergio get over to the office the notes are here you know and I Mm -hmm. run over to the office and uh, there are three typewritten single space pages of notes from Stephen and I'm in Sergio's little cubicle and we're both like reading through the thing and he he solved every problem we had, you know, every question that we had, he he wrote a paragraph out as to how to fix it or what you should do with the different characters that we'd had issues with. It was just like, for me, it was like gold, you know, to get that handed to you. And, uh, so, uh, Sergio says, this is great. Let's go talk to Dino. And so we went down to Dino's office and we walk in there And there's Dino and he's got the notes in his hand and he's reading them. And we'd sit down while he finishes reading them, I guess, in English. And uh, (laughs) he's got these notes. And, you know, as I mentioned in my book, I'm cribbing from my own book, but it was the truth. I could just, this was the moment where it came to an end for me with the project. Is he's looking at him and he just gives this, and he tosses the notes over his shoulder, like there's nothing here for us to use, and so <laughs> oh, God. you know they had already made a plane reservation for me to go home. So I went home. And,
1: oh uh, God, that's awful.
2: That was pretty much the end of my. You know, I got a phone call a few uh, weeks later from Sergio saying, "Oh Don, you know, you need to. There, there are things going on here, and uh, they may be moving on without you." And I just, I just didn't want to fight it because I didn't know how to how to do anything with it mm-hmm. under the circumstances. So right. they let me go and somebody else made the movie.
1: That's incredible. incredible. So you didn't, cause there's like rumors all over the internet that you shot part of it. And then no. and, and none no. of that's true.
2: No, no, yeah. no, Actually, it, an interesting side, just a side, no, a side story is I didn't sure, know right? it at the time, but I was really ill. I had this disease that required exploratory surgery and, uh, in a way, I think it was great. <laughs> I think I'm still alive because I didn't do the movie, and I went back and got the surgery, and everything was fine, and I was perfect afterwards. But, uh, no, I, I didn't. I n- it never went beyond that uh, one draft that I wrote. If you look at the fine, now, Then I found out that uh, somehow Dino uh, did convince Stephen to write the draft of the script. And, yes. uh Which I don't think I ever saw a copy of
1: that. You know, I, didn't they, I think they actually it. released it as like like yeah. the the movie tie-in book or whatever for Silver Bullet was just the screenplay for Stephen oh, King. I, I, Stephen I should King track Oh, you
2: know, I did have a phone call with Stephen, which I just remembered. Oh, which yeah? Which was uh, after that period and after I got better from that surgery, I uh, directed my one and only uh, music video for Ronnie James Dio called The Last in Line. And I was <laughs> somehow, I was at the the production office for that and somehow i got a phone call Go, don it's for you and i pick up the phone and, and it was uh uh stephen king calling and he's basically going hey don what's going on with this uh, project what's happening i haven't heard anything and i go uh i i don't know anything about it I, I left new york and i haven't heard anything more from them and so it's okay well let me call and see what's going on and that was uh the la my my last involvement. Uh I, I, I- love
1: that, that Stephen King instead of calling Dino up, he <laughs> yes, tracked you down on a music set of them, video right. set from of, of a Dio music video <laughs> uh, <I don't laughs> to know ask how you it's he like, okay, hey what's now, going in, on? With in, this
2: in thing? Fair, okay. In, I, I I could be wrong that he tried. I, did I call him or did he call me? I think he called me, but I, you know, I don't know to be sure, but uh, to, just to set the record extremely straight, I don't remember it exactly. But I did talk to him in that production office there. You know, it was a sore subject. You know, I I wanted to make that movie. And I thought that that storyline with that kid was great. And I could have really done something with it. And so, you know, when the movie ultimately came out, I don't think I went and saw it in the theaters. I think I probably saw it on the couch on cable TV a few years after that. And uh, two observations. First off, I thought the casting was great in the movie. I'd always yeah. been a huge Gary Busey fan, and as, and as Eric knows, I actually considered him for Bubba Hotep, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it didn't work out, thank God. Uh, and I, and I, <laughs> I like the, the, um, the Corey that they selected yeah. uh, for him. I, yeah. th- I thought he was a, just a wonderful talent
0: at that Corey. age, yeah. certainly. You say my, the yeah, Corey th- that they selected. Uh, did you have a different Corey in mind? No, there were, there were two Corys at the time. They always call <laughs> them the two Corys.
2: Uh, Corey, Fair enough. What were their last so names? I I'm forgetting C- both Feldman. of them. Hame, Hame Hame the Feldman. Hame and Feldman. Hame and Feldman,
1: right. I really do. I agree. I think that the Corey Hame's performance in in the eventual movie is like some of the best stuff he ever did as an actor. Yeah,
2: he's a very appealing guy. And the, and the whole thing you know go back and read that original calendar and book mm-hmm. i mean it's really you know that the final words i think you know after uh not spoiler alert after uh, marty kills the werewolf as his uncle like leans over and puts his arm around and says i love you i mean it's just like the relationship was so 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 great in the original story but uh, my observations are uh yes there's only one thing from my script that wound up in the movie and uh, hmm. and you can see why it wound up in the movie, which is there's a scene in the ground fog where the hunters go out into ground fog, and it was right. of course came from me struggling like how do I treat the werewolf like Jaws? How can we can we put him underwater? You know, and I thought no, no, what right. about some ground fog? And then they're in the ground fog and can run around, and you don't have to show them, but you can see the effects of it. So that. Yeah. There is some bit of that in and that was about it. But I just do want to say go back and watch the opening scene of Silver Bullet. Tell me where that Carlo Rambaldi werewolf is. There's one <laughs> werewolf claw comes through a, through the scene. So uh I felt vindicated by that.
1: It's funny that that you mentioned the jaws thing cuz that's been in my revisiting of this, I noticed how much of the, the eventual movie got structured like Jaws. And, and, uh, and finally that that was your approach. And I have to imagine that stuck in the back of, of their minds as they were making it, maybe as they were realizing that the werewolf, cause apparently they were having a lot of trouble agreeing on the look of the werewolf King hated it and Dino loved it and, and blah, 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 all this stuff. The director, you know, hated it and loved it at different points. And, sure. and like all the, this, there's a lot of drama there. So maybe that, you know, is just part and parcel with needing to hide the effect or, you know, with all these people arguing about whether it was good or not, but structurally that movie is Jaws. It's like down to the grieving parent yeah. confronting, mm-hmm. uh, confronting the sheriff for not doing enough, you know, to to protect, you know, their, their kid. Good it's point. like you're yeah. right in the middle of the movie. It's like uh-huh. that movie is structured like Jaws, and yes. it's so funny to hear you talk about you know, how that was your approach, but more from a, like a suspense angle.
2: Yeah, 100%. And I, uh, you're completely right on there, Eric. Although we do need to make an aside to the audience out there is that there is no bigger jaws nut in this world
1: than Eric me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would definitely figure that out. I think Nicotero gives me a run for my okay, money. That, but, that, uh... that is
2: true. Greg is a huge Jaws fan, for sure. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, but you're right. That was, uh, it's the only way to approach it. I mean, and maybe not just Jaws. I mean, you look at any kind of creature movie that's most that i can think of you know you look at the alien original alien you know you just mm. see that you see the hints of the alien and then finally if you're lucky enough to have a great costume or a great effect then you unfolded in the third act and you know right. terrify everyone totally but yeah it was uh an interesting experience certainly for me and uh you know with uh, a lot of good memories um and then unfortunately i just couldn't you know <laughs> make the movie
0: Here's a well, question yeah. I have. Uh, Dino has I've become increasingly fascinated with Dino as this show has gone on because he keeps popping up. He's like this little goblin that keeps popping up in in <laughs> in conversations about these various projects. I'm going to I'm going to give you my like my mental picture of him. And and I'm, I'm hoping you can tell me how accurate this is. Right.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Here's what I'm imagining. Dino De Laurentiis. Is like a cross between Klaus Kinski <laughs> and uh Uncle Junior from The Sopranos. His blood pressure is constantly skyrocketed. He is frequently yelling about something, and he has a cartoonishly, almost offensively Italian accent that he's he's speaking in. And is sometimes just a, a complete mystery. Like, you have no idea what this guy might be talking about from from moment to moment. How accurate is that? Look, I
2: <laughs> didn't spend that much time with him to be able to give you a full... Uh,
0: You've been in his office, though. I, I have. Several yes, times. I was yeah. in his office. and uh, You've observed him mad. I, I did do that.
2: Um, but, uh, you know, listen, I'll, I'll give you the two sides of Dino De Laurentiis that I know. Number one, brilliant businessman who doesn't get much credit for it, but he actually created the whole territorial sales business, which as Eric knows, having, uh, visited me over at the American film market where I out there trying to sell my movies to international buyers. De Laurentiis created that. He's the first one who would license, he would create a, you know, he would put together a package and he would get an American studio to distribute it in America. And then he would go out to each territorial distributor and sell each one. He would finance his movie from one or the other. He'd get the advance from the Americans or he'd get the advances from the foreigners and he'd make the movie and then everything else was gravy. And I had read rumors that maybe he was one of the richest men in Hollywood at one time. I don't know if that's true. But I did witness one other thing, which uh, always fascinated me, is I was sitting there with him waiting for Stephen King to arrive. And he was getting his shoes shined in the office up there. He had these black, probably Gucci loafers, I don't know. And uh, the entire time I was sitting, Wow. Here's I'm sitting with like a guy worth a lot of money. How much is he going to tip the shine guy? <laughs> and I just watched and I watched. And uh, yeah, he pulled up one buck and gave it to the guy on the way out the door. So uh, I guess sounds knew, about right. Knew how to manage I mean, his money um, too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> He's sir- <laughs> tight with a buck. I think you're absolutely right on the, the fact that. I think most people that have like an awareness of Dino, they have a certain image in mind and he's sort of a huckster who made great movies and he made some bad movies, you know, so fair enough. I do think he was a good businessman. And so that makes sense. But that's like another reason I find him to be like sort of a fascinating character. Well, you know, you're probably right in that he played into the Italian side of things.
2: But I think, you know, look, I I have such a limited, I mean, for instance, the first time I was invited over to his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is, I don't know if you've ever been to the Beverly Hills Hotel, but behind the Beverly Hills are these little houses, which are called bungalows. And God knows what the the price thing. where Belushi died. Yeah.
1: Uh, that no, was at Chateau Marmont. Yeah.
2: But, uh, head. but all the, you know, the high and mighty stay in those bungalows. At any rate, as we, the, I went there with Paul Pepperman and we walked in the door and Dino was irritated with us. Cause I, somebody messed up the time. We were like a half hour late and he had been cooking pasta for his extended family there and wanted to have us eat pasta with them. And we missed it, which was, I was, really, you know, I love pasta. What so I was, really felt bad about that. Uh, and I'm trying, i also wondering like, gosh, is it possible that the child Giada di Laurentiis was there eating pasta, you know, as
0: I walked in the door, I don't know. Yeah, um, for real. But do you uh, remember what kind of pasta it was? I got to know if Dino no, was like a white no, sauce guy we were, or a red they, sauce. They were, guy. No, it was a red sauce. Okay, house, right, on, right on. yeah i would um, have predicted that
2: but he was you know he was a marketing <laughs> genius there's no question but i think it could be detrimental like you know he sold the hell out of that king kong movie and i think it opened big but then uh you know then it turned out that you know there was no that the king well, i mean the sad part is is he should have been marketing and hyping the great uh rick baker work you know but i think right, he, right. Was, he was hiding that in in forcing carlo rimbaldi into the foreground
1: didn't rimbaldi move on from kong to do et wasn't he like et's father
2: yes he was uh yeah Yeah. he was responsible for i mean he's credited for uh et and for alien but then i don't know there's some revisionist history out there about both of those so all i can just say is i don't know you know you'd have to read up on it what his involvement was
1: yeah that that gets all sloppy. I mean even for the people that you know I I worship the Stan Winstons of the world and the you know uh, I mean Rick Baker can do anything but even the people that I you know super look up to the Dick Smiths you know they still had teams of very talented people oh, helping sure. them yeah, make sure. make make this stuff and kind of going back to the the circling back to Bob Burns like Bob Burns was was uh the guy he didn't just collect shit he also like put on these very infamous halloween events where he would turn his house into oh. uh into different thing like he made uh made it the outpost from the thing like one year that and-
2: was an amazing deal that they had there with our good friend dan roebuck played the yep. like the host uh um, general or sergeant leading us into the the arctic uh outpost that thing yeah was so great. they
1: turned the this- just to paint this picture, Bob like lived in Burbank. He still lives in Burbank. Yeah. Um, his wife, Kathy just passed. Unfortunately, she oh, was, I just heard absolute, that.
2: What a nice lady. She, she was one of
1: the nicest people and yeah. fascinating too. She had this whole history where she was like, uh, she worked at the studio system in like the, the sixties and would like her job was to go like essentially get, the older golden era stars on record and do like these in-depth interviews and stuff with them so she had all these stories about going to like jimmy stewart's house and how you know he got mad because she saw he she saw him without his hairpiece on and like oh, wow. you know and all this stuff she she was she was wonderful so shout out to uh kathy and she will be missed. she's yes, one of the nicest ladies missed. that i've ever met um, i remember but we the, all went
2: out to dinner with her that night
1: we did. We took her, we went to um, a diner that they loved and they yeah. like, we insisted on uh, Aaron in, in particular, insisted on picking up the check uh, for them. Really uh, nice. And, yeah. uh, but they were telling, I mean, great stories, you know, Bob, their first date story is incredible. They went to go see, sorry, this is a weird alleyway, but I, I promise I'm getting somewhere with it. Uh, but they, their first date was they he took her to go see a 3d Western. And oh, I uh, remember that story, yeah. Remember this story, and so he asked her to this thing, and uh, he hid an arrow up his sleeve for the entire date just because he'd seen the movie and he knew there was a scene where, where all these uh, arrows were coming at camera in 3D, and so he <laughs> h- hid this arrow this entire date, and then, like, right in the scene, he pulls it out and like hits it to his chest as if he got shot and starts spazzing out and to to freak out. And that was their first date. So this is the kind of person that That's uh, a
0: baller move
1: though. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that that that's the the kind of couple that, that they were that she she would uh one that he would do that for her as a woo tactic and two that it worked. You know? Love it. So Love it. You, yeah. you know, you know that they they were great together. Um but these Halloween events that they would do, that's like he they would use like the neighborhood kids who were interested in effects stuff like he would make it look like a ufo crash into his roof or whatever and he would really well, he go
2: did, he did the first alien one and he got a bunch right. of the alien props i never Drops. saw this i just saw videos of it right and uh the basically you know you're led back into the like the uh the is it the Sala uh was, it the was that the slaco was that the ship or yeah. the yeah. the nostromo N- the nostromo led into the like the, the solaco
1: the, was the second one i think the nostromo bridge was yeah nostromo is so- the, so- the first one so,
2: right. the so they bring uh, like a dozen people in at a time, you know, host brings you onto the bridge of the alien ship and he's got the little meter that's going, Oh, beep, beep, beep. It's here or whatever. And then somebody uh-huh. in the alien head would jump up behind the crowd and, uh, <laughs>
1: But he would bring, like, back in the early days of him doing this, like, Rick Baker was a teenager, like, in the neighborhood and came <laughs> and, and did it. And uh, it, it wasn't just him. Who else? Who was, it was the Phil Tippett, I think, was another one yes, of the, right. I've the heard kids about that got his, oh, yeah. his start uh, with tippet. them. and Uh-huh. And, yeah, so it's like he, he was this kind of hub for all these kids that would later, like, go on to be the masters of their craft. Um, and and, but, and speaking,
2: uh, speaking of masters, the first time I ever got invited to one of those director dinners, which were later called the Masters of Horror, right. the, who did they? They had Bob Burns was the honorary guest there because he no. was friends with Landis because everybody was giving him their props after their movies.
1: Bob's got, like, a... Uh, he he had the David Werewolf oh, from yeah. American Werewolf. He had uh, he had like the extendy hand from whenever David Naughton's transforming. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he had that, and uh, I remember. Uh, sorry, this is turning into the Bob Burns cast here, but uh, but this is a really fun mo- memory for me. But he, uh, uh, I saw that, and I was excited because you could like pick it up. This isn't like a museum; it's just in this guy's like garage, essentially. Like it's a nice air conditioned, whatever. It's like a so it's not just like thrown a two-story have, add-on has. to his house. <laughs> it is. It's it's almost like a, a secondary house. Um but so you but it's not like a museum. These things aren't behind glass. So like he encourages you to pick it up pick, pick up and play with that gizmo if you want, you know. You know, it's like he's got all these things around and I remember picking up the uh the extendo hand and it still had all the uh, attachments to it. So you could still make it like move. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so we were playing with it and he came up and he's like, if you notice uh, the pigment is darker on this than you remember. And that's because they recolored it for Michael Jackson's transformation in thriller oh, and thriller wow. and reused it in thriller. And Good so it's the shit. same effect from from American Werewolf. It's the exact same prop, but they, uh, they did like a paint job on it to, uh, to make it match Michael Jackson. There was a, a moment in time where if you just knew the right person, you can go to L.A. and, and uh, get hooked up with Bob. And you just love to show off his stuff and, and talk with other, you know, monster kids. So,
0: yeah. Good Don, points. if um, somehow someone waved a magic wand and this was something you wanted to do to begin with, and you were remaking Silver Bullet today. Like, how would you go about executing the werewolf? Because you said earlier, like, you think we're 10 years out or more from being able to do it completely digitally. If you had to do it right now, are you doing prosthetics plus CGI well, look, to they're, augment they're, they're, that? Or, like, what yeah, would you do? Yeah, of course.
2: That, that, that's, you know, the, they, they work hand in hand. There are certain things that you can only do with a CGI effect. Um, although, you know, I, I'm trying to think back. Uh, I'm not sure that I know. How did they do the werewolves in uh, Neil Marshall's uh, movie? Do you guys know if that was a?
1: I think those dog soldiers. I think those almost exclusively practical, but they had yeah. dancers on stilts. Dancers on stilts.
2: That's what I was thinking. Yeah. See, that was a pretty innovative and clever uh, tactic.
1: Because yeah. um, they had the they had the dog legs, right? So they were the, yeah. where the right. knee, like little, met the other way. Yeah, hound legs.
2: Yeah so I, I think that they they did try something like that which was uh, very clever uh you know i don't i don't know you'd have to uh you'd, <laughs> of course uh scott it comes down to uh, how much is the
0: budget? <laughs> right. uh, you know, uh, it's a, let's it, say it's a, let's say it's a solid budget, but not yeah, uh, um, Lord of the Rings. I, I think it's I think say it's, like an
1: it budget. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like a, yeah. Let's a 60 go with million. million. Well, yeah, look, sixty million bucks.
2: I, I think just the nature of dramatic horror t- storytelling. Is is the 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 less you see at the beginning, it brings you into the story before you you basically have to show your cards of what 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 right. you can do. So you um, wouldn't have to show the full blown werewolf. No, you? not at all. And especially the thing is, is that uh, a lot of the different uh, sequences. I mean, now I, I am thinking though that uh, King did write a pretty epic sequence where. I can't remember what month. If it was, it wasn't. It wasn't in the final month of December because that was in the snow at their house. But it was the month where the all the werewolves jumped through the stained glass windows of the church.
0: Yeah,
2: you know how do you? Make that work. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I think you still have to use sleight of hand and, and trickery. I think it's one of the hardest of the classic monsters to to create because uh-huh. there's so much fur on them. See, totally. that's the beauty about. Look, you can go back to back. We'll go back into Eric's domain back to what was it, 1975 with Jaws. There's no fur on a shark. You know, it's that. Right. You know, it's much easier even with the limited prosthetic materials they had back then to make. You know, a slick painted. Skin surface for a shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, the the fur uh, is where it goes south. Yeah. I think if I it a were question. me, I would
0: I would like okay. immediately bow out because I would be like <laughs> it, it has to. Well, it, like, can we make it look exactly like Bernie Wrightson's illustrations? And they'd be like, mm, no, that's not <laughs> no. going to be realistic. And I'd say, yeah. I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. See, well, that, the-
1: yeah, that's where I was. I was going to go is, is uh, I would love to know if you're. Even though that was kind of seems like it was kind of out of your hands in the limited time you were in there, that it was just Dino and Carlo and whatever they were going to make, they were going to make. Uh, but you know, the thing that's striking about Cycle of the Werewolf, you know, more so even than King's writing, are those Bernie Wrights and illustrations, and that to me is the werewolf that I would want to see. Yeah, you know, totally. some big monster, pointy eared, you know, giant wolf, you know, thing that's well, not well, a man in a suit, but you well, know, an actual creature.
2: Let me just give you something that would explain that, uh, that I learned on the making of The Beastmaster, which was we had some mm. lovely, beautiful illustrations done by a, a really famous uh, and celebrated uh, film illustrator named Nikita Nats. And mm. he did a beautiful rendition of those creatures that wrap you up and suck you dry that you, had, I think you had mentioned earlier, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I remember taking one of those illustrations and, and taking it to the makeup team and uh saying, Well, this is what we want. And then they, they like took out like little micrometer measuring tools and they measured the dimensions and they said you cannot fit this costume on a human body the way it's illustrated. <laughs> you know, you, there's no one with a with a waist that slim and, you know, biceps that big. So a lot of times, you, illustrators are able to, obviously, that's what art is all about. They're able to create something uh, out of nothing, but it can never really relate to the physical world. And so... Uh, Sure. You know, a lot of times. And this is a problem we always face with, uh, you know, when we did Bubba Hotep with the mummy, which the design was with a very narrow waist. And luckily we had Bob Ivy who's a very slender uh, stunt uh, gaffer and coordinator who was able to fit into the costume and it looked good.
0: So throughout the rest of your career, you never, and until today, you've never flirted with doing another King adaptation. Is that correct? Oh. Or is that opening up another hour-long conversation? No, uh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: uh, no. I mean, yeah, of course, I would love to 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 do something of his because the you know his the, there's so many of his books that I I just love and in so many different genres. I mean, uh, right. I absolutely adored eleven twenty two sixty three. What a sure. great book that was! What a great romance across time. That was a great mm. book. I loved Cell. I thought there was a good movie in that. Um, I think somebody proved uh, me
1: wrong, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> I you know, was gonna say, it, not it's so a great much. setup. That yeah, yeah, Cell's got a great setup that that could be really fun to do yeah. for sure. Um,
2: but uh, yeah, but yeah, you know, sure, I, I would have loved to do a, 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 a work work with Steven on something. I'd love to just see him again. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. No, yeah for I real. mean, it's what's funny. It's clear once again that he's. An admirer of yours and it I understand why, because you both have a really great grasp of making the extreme relatable and you do that through your character work. And that's what every, okay. every project that you've, okay. you've done totally. you know, from, you know, really from the phantasm through Bubba through John dies at the end. Like they all, the characters all have a, a very distinct voice. They're all relatable. They're all recognizable as real people. Even in, a, e, when you go to extremes, you know, even when you go like goofy in the later phantasm sequels, you when know. you have a, you know, a chick with uh, with nunchucks and a, you know, nineties Chris rock haircut, you know, yeah. <laughs> doing it like you're, you know, you're, you know rocky fucking is instantly you know iconic but she's believable as, as being a real person within that world so you you both have a talent for that so i i'd very much love for, for that's those really two
2: sweet too. of you to say um eric thank you but uh you know i you, you just can't put my name in the same breath with steven because that you know the, Monumental was the term that uh, Scott used earlier, and he's uh, a national treasure, and uh, may he live a long, long life for all of us,
0: and for himself. This is usually the part in the show where we allow our our guests to tease whatever they're working on next.
2: Promoting things all along. Well, let's see. We got the Phantasm Sphere collection on Amazon coming up. <laughs> yeah. We got True Indie in the, you know, on Amazon and and on phantasm.com. Um I you know I've actually got uh you know there's stuff that I cannot talk about as always And Eric knows this. I got I think there's things happening with all the different movies I we've talked about here. Um Got some interesting stuff happening with Bubba Beastmaster, uh, John Dies, and uh, Phantasm. But the the only one I could really talk about now is, an, uh, we could spend another hour on. Um, but I could suffice to say is to go to this uh, website called whereisthebeastmaster.com com, and you can tell the hmm. horrible story about how. My other foreign-born rights holder on that film seems to have lost the original negative to the Beastmaster. It's just an unbelievable story. John Alcott, the cinematographer from The Shining, it appears that his negative on the Beastmaster may have been thrown into a dumpster and it's horrible. Uh, there's oh a pretty, pretty nice, ad, God. excellent God. restoration was made recently by vinegar syndrome. There are some really talented guys and they did a, uh, using this, uh, in, in, in inner positive, which was a, a pretty decent thing, but the original camera negative, I think on that movie may be gone, but the good, cool thing about it was, is that, uh, do you guys know anything about how uh, about copyright law and how uh, after 30 years, rights sure. owners? Yeah. So, and yeah. It, My, my. I mentioned him earlier, Paul Pepper and I. We co-wrote the screenplay for the Beastmaster, and we were able to reclaim the copyright through copyright law. And so, oh, wow. uh, we now uh, needs a couple more months for the thing to finally vest, but it's all been cleared legally that we now have the ability to uh, control that copyright with luck. I mean, I guess It it might be fun to try to get a series or a movie made remake. Reboot of that a series would be fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's something cool and new and different. As long
1: so, as you know. there's more ferrets, that's all I ask. More ferrets.
0: <laughs> as long as there's more Coscarelli, frankly.
2: Well,
1: thank you. No, I'm, I'm I, uh,
2: I haven't retired yet, so uh, there hopefully there'll be more, more in the future coming from me.
0: Very well. Awesome, well, thank you so Sweet. much for being here today. This was, uh, this is a delight and just truly awesome to just sit and listen to. Um, well,
2: uh, thanks for letting me prattle on, but thanks even more so for creating this great uh, vehicle to discuss uh, the influence these had on uh, King has had on uh, movies because it is profound as the as the books for sure.
1: Many thanks to Don Coscarelli for that very riveting conversation and uh, dispelling a lot of myths out there. Like like I mentioned in the episode, it's good to have Don give the the full you know, on the ground
0: report of his involvement with silver bullet. Hard to believe that there might be false information floating around the, uh, notoriously reliable internet, but, but there we are. And, uh, good Lord. What a, what a blast it is to talk to that guy. As I mentioned on the episode, I had not ever interacted with Don before. And I was, uh, I was just delighted by him. Just, a, no, he's best. just a good dude. Uh, and also apologies,
1: by the way, if you heard any kind of artifacting or any, uh, Mike scratchy sounds on on his end. That's just kind of how it is sometimes when you're recording all this stuff remotely, you know, we're having to work with whatever uh, equipment and recording stuff we have on hand. He came through clear, but, uh, but yes, we do. We did hear the, the, the scratchiness on his audio sometimes, but
0: the be listeners will be fine. You got a guest as affable as <laughs> Mr. Don Coscarelli. You cannot complain about scratchiness on the audio. That's just That's true. rule. Number one, rule number you one. You better want to hear You better it. not.
1: And we've acknowledged it, so we're not even trying to sweep this one under the rug. So there.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's our promise to you. So let's tell them what we're doing next week, Eric. Yeah,
1: next week is a very exciting episode for me because this is one we get to really dive deeply into a book of Kings because it has not been adapted yet. And not only a book, it is probably his most infamous book because it is the only one that he's ever allowed to drop out of publication and that is Rage, which is uh I believe his first Richard Bachman book. If not first, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, definitely one of the early Richard Bachman books. We go into why it was pulled, uh hear from King directly, you know, I'll bring in some King quotes on on, you know, his thoughts on all this stuff. Uh, uh and we have a a a guest who is very knowledgeable about it as
0: well. Mm-hmm. She's a horror expert of some renown. Um, We have worked with her in the past. I can say that. The subject matters real heavy, y'all. There's not going to be any, um, say, baseball noises during this particular (laughs) episode. Yeah, you won't be hearing that during Rage. But uh, we are finally going to crack into this thing. And we think you're going to be interested in what we came up with. I would also like to point out that we will also be dropping next Thursday a... uh, little surprise in the main feed, a little something from our Patreon. We just want to, you know, remind everyone we've still got that Patreon going. And uh, a while back, we did an episode with somebody that's highly entertaining. We think you will enjoy that'll drop next Thursday. So you're getting a little little bonus here in the in the main feed. Let's see, this Friday on the Patreon bonus episode side of things, I'm stretching this out because, look, folks, the truth is that uh, we haven't quite decided what the bonus episode is going to be this week. <laughs> so I'm just kind of bullshitting my way through this. You're hearing my voice talk about the bonus episode that will be hitting the KingCast Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash the KingCast this Friday. Uh, no idea what it's going to be yet, but uh, we can promise you it'll be entertaining. We're just not quite sure yet. So uh, Patreon subscribers. Sorry, I don't have a more detailed breakdown for you on that, but uh, it is coming as scheduled. Oh, yep. you know what I will say, though, on the bonus episode front, we're gearing up to do another one of our uh, KingCast mailbag episodes. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer on the air or you know anything you want to know about the show or potential guests or titles that we've talked about that we didn't get to a, a specific element of them that maybe you were hoping to hear us talk about go ahead and send those questions into uh, what's our email address again here where's the kingcast mailbox
1: the kingcast 19 at gmail.com
0: yeah go ahead and send those in if you're not a patreon subscriber of course uh, you won't actually get to hear those questions answered if you ask one but um, I don't know Uh, There's a very good chance that if you write in, it will appear on the show. So take that into consideration.
1: Any question you have about the podcast, about us, about our work, feel free to email that to us at thekingcast 19 at gmail.com.
0: Just want to hear me answer a question about Alien 3 for 90 minutes. Here's how you get it. (laughs) So we'll see people in the main feed next
1: week for rage and uh, and also a special bonus drop which you will be very excited to, to listen to it's a very fun episode um and then uh this friday we will come up with a mystery episode for you uh on our patreon very well
0: adios folks
1: the king cast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric Vespi that's me and scott wampler tira Ansley and abby goel are executive producers Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.